Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Anastasia Juventen, who's a portfolio manager of hedge funds and alternative strategies at AMP Capital. Anastasia, welcome. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. No problem. So I thought for you today, we would start off with um, your role at AMP. I know AMP um, has been going under a little bit of a restructure within its um, hedge funds and alternative space. You've been there now two years. If you could maybe give us a bit of a, a background of sort of what you've been doing as part of this restructure. Right, yeah. So I did join AMP Capital two years ago, actually two years to the date almost. And when I started there, given my background previously in managing alternatives in New Zealand for BT, there I was just asked to maybe have a look at, our, at the program where we had. I didn't start as a restructure because if, if, anyone, if anyone's done a restructure, they know it's not a lot of fun and uh, and you need to really weight up the cost of it and the benefits of it. So we just started looking at what allocations we had across the um, hedge fund and, and alter, other alternative strategies and just tried to test our objectives for the program and make sure that that still was the right thing to pursue for our clients and then sort of really just consider holistically what we what we needed from the hedge fund book in particular. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the hedge fund sector itself has gone through a large amount of changes over the last, you know, recent past. And we just wanted to make sure that whatever we were getting out of it was still appropriate for our clients. So that's how it started, more of a holistic look using a, a pair of fresh eyes. Uh, we looked at the ways of you know, how to best implement and structure the program as well. And for us, it made sense to, to make some changes to the portfolio. So what we essentially are doing as we speak, we're in the middle of the transition. So I can't really talk to the names of the managers or anything like that. But after retesting our objectives for the book and our conviction in maintaining the program, we looked at the ways to implement it and structure it. And it made sense from the client perspective to move into more of a custom-based approach, which, which is, as I just mentioned, we're currently doing. You know, as you look into the portfolio, that portfolio is made up of, an, of a number of names, a number of different strategies. What are you trying to sort of get? You've got an objective there. What are you looking for to try and maybe mm-hmm. optimize for in terms of efficiency? Just for the point of, of reference, I guess for AMP Capital, um, this is not a standalone fund. So you can't just buy my fund. Um, it's a, it's more of a completion. It's more of part of the diversified portfolios. So for me, it's really important that in this part of the allocation, we're just not doubling up on some of those sources of return that we can get elsewhere. In the past, we invested through a, a large hedge fund or fund program. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that structure. It just for us and taking, I guess, consideration to the fact that it is part of the diversified portfolio, we wanted to optimize in terms of the additional sources of returns that we are adding there. And I guess from a client standpoint, you really, really don't want to have a 
doubling up exposure to the same sources of return. So given that we look at, at the hedge fund book as part of the diversifier bucket, diversifier allocation, we optimize in terms of making sure that we add capacity um, in terms of those return sources that, that we access. And that's kind of briefly. And what we're doing also as part of this restructure to enhance the idiosyncrasy of those return streams is we actually introduce co-investments. And historically, the co-investments, you know, have been allocated to, you know, custom funds or dedicated co-investment vehicles. So we carved out an allocation within this book to co-investments. Those deals are sourced from hedge fund you know, managers and usually... Uh, you know, they, they vary across industries and geography. We've hired a partner manager to do the underwriting uh, process and, you know, the research and due diligence, obviously, on those deals. But basically, adding those co-investment opportunities just adds to the, I guess, the breadth of the, of the universe and as those quite differentiated sources of returns, which we're quite excited about. The co-investment is really interesting for this particular part of the market. We, we always hear about co-investments in infrastructure and private equity, but less so alongside hedge funds. What What's the, the premise or the backdrop that you're looking for as you're doing co-investment in the hedge fund? Is it setting a mandate and then getting them to work within that? Is it around sharing IP? What does that partnership mm-hmm. look like or that co-investment? So the way, and I know there's there's multiple ways to introduce that. For us, as the first step, so I've mentioned that we hired an advisor or a manager partner, as I like to refer to them, who will be managing effectively this new custom allocation to hedge funds for us. As, as, and as part of that custom allocation to hedge funds, co-investments is about a third or a dedicated weight to that is about a third. So we worked with this, you know, manager or partner manager, as I like to refer to them, to set up guidelines and constraints in terms of the co-investment deals that, that we will be willing to take. It will be done case by case. So we're not locking up and going into a, a fund of co-investment deals. These co-investments will be specific to our constraints. Some of those constraints will be around liquidity. An exit time. And so what the partner manager does is they have access to a large community of hedge funds and you really do thorough due diligence, look at the exit options, also obviously look at you know tax, legal and other regulatory considerations around the co-investment deals, uh, which makes the process a little bit easier for us. So this is the first foray into the co-investments with hedge funds for us. Um, going forward, that might change in terms of how we implement it. In terms of the nature of deals, uh, we so far only added one, and as I've mentioned, we're still you know, going through this transition. Transition will be like finalized at the end of this year, at which point I'll probably be able to speak a little bit more to who this HMONT advisory partner manager is and, and sort of um, what exactly, what exact strategies we're looking there. But in terms of the co-investment deals, We've added um, one in the equity space. Basically, strategies that that are looking very attractive, but the manager can't have the full allocation in their flagship funds. So some of them would sit separately in our co-investment sleeve. Is that is this fund, or I'm sort of cherry picking a little bit, but is this fund sort of focused purely on alpha or is it some sort of unique beta, alternate beta stream that you're looking for? 
So when I talk about our hedge fund program that we're in the process of restructuring, I only refer to the hedge fund strategies. So being the alpha component, and I guess that's that's kind of good. It's kind of one of those things that I've mentioned before about the changes in the hedge fund space. I guess previously, if you talked about hedge fund, it was all considered to be alpha. But as we know, the last several years, we've started looking at really as alpha plus. Alternative risk premium, for example. So we do have allocation to alt-risk premium elsewhere. But when I refer to hedge fund book restructure, I really talk about those alpha opportunities and thus the need to enhance the idiosyncrasy of return streams. And thus the need to reduce doubling up on some of the, you know, say equity strategies, for example, really needed to figure out if we needed, you know, the long short equity manager. And I'm not saying we don't have any, but it was sort of a task to look at the whole portfolio on the diversified fund level and make sure that that whatever we're adding and is true alpha there and it's not those strategies that are accessed elsewhere in the portfolio. Is it fair to say that that sort of part of the portfolio is partially defensive for the broader portfolio? So, you know, you manage your book and it sits within a broader portfolio. You know, is this part Mm. of the portfolio mostly seen as defensive? I find that I'm very cautious when I use the word defensive because people might interpret it differently. So, you know, when you say defensive, what exactly do you mean? When I when I look at it, it sits in the diversified part of the portfolio. So by the nature of how we're constructing this and by the nature of the strategies that are going into it, and we've put very significant constraints on, um, you know, correlation to equity markets, for example, and beaters. But when you say defensive, it might naturally mean to some people that it it holds um, or outperforms significantly or doesn't have a drawdown. I mean, I don't expect this part of the portfolio to never have a drawdown, but you can characterize it as defensive by the nature that it has, you know, low volatility profile, for example, relative to equities. But once again, even low correlation doesn't mean no correlation and... I would not be surprised to see drawdowns in the book from Mm -hmm. time to time. It just the nature of drawdowns would be different. And I guess a lot of the time, the underlying reasons for that might, might differ as well. Just to clear to clear it up, I think that you're you're right. It, well, it was, that was what I was thinking in terms of sort of the the lower correlation, maybe sort of lower drawdowns, and maybe being sort of a little bit of a of a of a hedge in some place to some degree slash market neutral in its thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, was what I, what I was sort of trying to get at. And I, I think even what we witnessed in March, the conversation around the hedges um, in the portfolio are quite topical at the moment. So in the hedge fund alpha portfolio, as I referred to it, that's being restructured at the moment, we don't necessarily have, have some of those tail hedging programs. Where they belong is still up for debate. My personal view and not AMP capital view, but... Just to make it clear, um, my personal view is that that's probably, in terms of the tail hedging, probably needs to be done on the total portfolio level. So um, while we refer to it as hedge funds, they're not necessarily there to hedge in terms of drawdown, if it makes any sense. Why it's diversified, once again, those strategies, I mean, if you look at, you know, what, what hedge funds actually are, they're just you know, managers that have a greater flexibility to more traditional investments, right? And so they can implement different strategies. They're not as constrained in terms of the instruments that they use or geographies that they go to. 
So it's, you know, they're mostly diversifying to a stock and bond portfolios. They have, you know, lower variability of, of returns and uh, lower sensitivity to mm. movements in the stock market. But I don't see them as a hedge, as per se, in, okay. in its true definition of a hedge. I understand. So, you know, in terms of in terms of the risk premium style part of, and the alternatives part of the book, you know, how, how would you sort of characterize what's happening in that part of the of your portfolio? Good question, Alex. I know that um, there's a lot of conversation to that extent, right? So I have a few ideas on that and a few obviously spend a lot of time thinking about that. Well, if you look at 2019, in fact, that was one of the better years for the risk premium managers. And we've certainly seen some managers now in that part of the portfolio outperform. Then there were others that had underperformed to their objectives and continue to do so in 2020. I think it depends. We, MP Capital, allocated to ultra-risk premium for a long time. So they've benefited from several strong years of performance in those strategies. This is our sort of, that allocation I view as our, you know, beta of the absolute return allocation. So if, if I look at the hedge fund alpha, that's the true alpha allocation. And this is the beta being alternative beta, but nonetheless. I think... The question is whether this is a structural change or just a cyclical change. And I still haven't made up my mind on that one. But what I would like to say is that we benefited from having a combination of managers in that part of the book. So as I've mentioned, we had some managers that performed really well last year and that aided. So once again, diversification, not just across the strategies, but across the managers helped. Do I have conviction that this is still good diversifies? Yes, I do. But we are working with, with our managers at the moment to just make sure that our objectives realign with you know expected future outcomes. And another thing that I often talk about, and I talk about it openly with, with managers in the space, is that I feel like in the past, some of the marketing around the strategies might have been a little bit too optimistic in terms of the down profile of the strategies. I mean, this is something obviously that we, we can't solve with, with this discussion, but I definitely think that maybe some of the expectations that we as investors had for the strategies were overly optimistic. And then again, premia are also cyclical. So once again, is it a structural or cyclical issue? I guess we'll have to wait and see. But we are looking and revisiting the strategies at the moment. You mentioned about the diversification of managers in that risk premium type strategies. Are, are these is is, it, is the situation that you have more managers looking at the same type of risk premium? We do have managers that access the same premium, but they define it differently. So essentially, they have quite differentiated performance from what on the you know high level seems like the same premium. The devil is really in the detail here. And I think if you're looking at allocating to risk premium, doing the extra level of due diligence is very important and understanding the detail of how the premium are defined and how the premium are actually harvested, so how the manager implements strategy. I joined MB Capital when they already had the allocation, so the due diligence has been done prior to me, but I'm definitely, you know, as I'm becoming more familiar with this book, readdressed the due diligence and looked at all the little nuances. And as I mentioned, for us, it made sense to allocate to more than one manager in the space 
because of those those differences. And in 2018 and 19, we did see those differences make add to the lead to the different outcomes, I should say, not add. So I think that's important. But I also think in that space, what's important is how much work the managers doing at, you know, research and development. Because really, it seems like you need to be running just to, just to stay in one place in that space at the moment. So that's sort of, sort of the questions and things that I've been looking most recently across our managers in the space. I'm curious, do you have a view on on what what's the, the biggest factor maybe in terms of dispersion of returns? Is it is it the definition of, of the factor or is it the implementation and the rebalancing? Which part do you think is, yeah. is driving the, the return differential most of all? It's a great question question Alex I don't think how I I don't think I will be very successful at putting one ahead of the other unfortunately I feel like they all really matter actually everything that you said was on my mind as examples of factors that do matter I've seen managers not not in this book but you know through conversations with peers and consultants I've seen that some managers that might for example look like they have higher turnover because they rebalance more frequently they might not be looked at because it optically makes it more costly. But in reality, you really need to understand the strategy and how those factors are defined and, and look at explanation why those, um, for example, turnover numbers could look higher. So that's important. And and I think, well, I think the definition of factors is also very important. The trading costs are important, the, impl- the implementation, the, the team, the depth of understanding, the depth of research that goes on. There's, there's so much to look at. So due diligence is, is really, I can't express how how important it becomes and then the knowledge and understanding of the strategies then then becomes really important when you go through periods of downturn you really need to rely on on understanding it to, to to be able to figure out whether you know whether you're fully comfortable with the reasons and whether you understand why exactly the strategy is drawing down because i think what's worse is not necessarily the drawdown itself because you could as a long-term investor you expect the strategy and, you know, given this cyclical component to the premium, you expect it to have drawdowns from time to time and that's fine. But what I think is scary part is, is if, if it's drawing down and you don't quite understand why it's doing that. And one thing that you, I didn't hear you say, but I'm curious about is sort of the impact of crowding in markets, you know, where a lot of people are moving into the same strategy, a lot of people moving out. How much do you sort of try to take that into consideration or the market structure? And- All very valid points, Alex. Crowding is one of those things that everyone is looking at and it's so hard to define. So we we have a few things that we look at in terms of the crowding and a few measures that we get our managers to report to us quarterly, you know, in terms of crowding and alpha decay and those strategies as well, which is the, the direct quoted sound of crowding. But in essence, um, in the very high level, I think the strategies without any doubt did benefit from an inflow um, into this type of investments. So we had a large wave from 2016 onwards going into risk premium. Once again, it was seen as a cheaper liquid allocation to alternatives, and I can I can understand the appeal. 
how exactly the outflows would impact. Well, I would think that the impact would be unfortunately on the downside, but the flows also really hard to estimate. You know, we look at manager universe and flows there, but then there are like large sovereign wealth funds that do those strategies in-house. And how do you look at those flows? That's that's a very challenging question. But in fact, I recently had a conversation with someone about those flows, just basically how those are likely to impact IRP and other risk factors. And I think that maybe flows should be looked at as an indicator by the managers themselves. And I know some do and some don't, but it's one of those conversations that I'm also currently having with our managers just in terms of how they can integrate that information, albeit that information might not be perfect. You mentioned a little bit earlier about vol targets, you know, as a target for particular managers. You know, how important is that for you, for different managers, particularly as you sort of think about the, the market regime changing from sort of high volatility, then goes low volatility for a long time, then spikes up? How do you sort of think about vol as as a objective as well that's a good question and if we go back to our hedge fund book we when we were you know reviewing the objectives and setting the objectives for the custom mandate we've set objectives around the net expected return that we want to deliver to our clients that invest in our diversified funds and obviously with that came a certain volatility target of the of the total book when we look at ultra-risk premium, we don't really have custom mandates there. So we, we invest with a manager's existing fund where you have, sometimes you have and sometimes you don't. Where we, where we invested, we had a choice of, you know, flagship mandate with low volatility or a higher volatility. And often high volatility in those strategies is seen to be additive to the performance, obviously. It's not shocking relevation if you have... A wall target of 12 to 15, you're exposing yourself to potentially a deeper drawdown, but you're also leveraging that to deliver high performance. Mm-hmm. So once again, for two parts of that absolute returns allocation, one part, we've looked at what volatility we wanted there, and that was part of our objective setting. The other part, we have a choice in the manager funds. I guess what you were also saying is that most recently, a lot of attention was around those funds that that had to deliver. I guess that's a different conversation, but also when volatility spikes, you have to reduce your gross exposure and whether that's what we've seen happening in March and whether the managers are just now slower to move back to those gross exposure levels and whether that's partially reason to the current performance that we've seen that's that's also the whole other discussion yeah that was sort of partly what i was trying to get at is that you know you can specify a vol target but then if the vol is quite low in the broader market then the fund needs to sort of leverage it up to get the vol there that's been the problem for a lot of the managers over the last i don't know five six years since volatility has been pretty much lacking and Suddenly in March, I wonder whether we were ready to see such a spike. But then the problem is that that is it's not exactly a, a continuous level of volatility. It, it's more of a volatility of volatility that increase. I don't think there's any right answer, but it's like one of the problems where you've got this situation where the market regime changes and volatility in those different regimes is very different. And I think the bigger problem for me is not really the fact that we, we you know we have a manager that runs at volatility of twelve or a manager that runs at volatility of ten. I think the bigger problem for me, not a problem, but I think a consideration I should really say, 
is that weather volatility is likely to be different going forward. And if it is so, how do we adjust for that and whether we need to adjust for that? That's definitely on the top of our minds and uh, conversations that we are having. I think another thing on a high level that uh, I would want to add there when we talk about volatility is you do need to remember that high volatility does well, high volatility objective for a manager, be it risk premium manager or be it any other manager, would mean a potential for a deeper drawdown. So if you think as any investor, you just need to evaluate that and, and make sure that that your objectives are set correctly and that you can tolerate those sort of drawdowns that can come with volatility of 10 to 15 profile. It's interesting what you sort of talk about within the individual manager because at the, at the broader case, you're talking about the total portfolio. Should the target vol mm-hmm. be almost across that whole portfolio of hedge funds and alternatives? For our hedge fund alpha book, we have a target for the total portfolios and then the underlying strategies that we access through hedge fund alpha book would have completely different volatility profiles. I mean, co-investment deals would have completely different volatility profiles to, you know, quant manager that might be in, in that book. So for that, uh, we're working off with top level constraints and then working working with our partner manager to populate that portfolio subject to those top level constraints. With the risk premium side of things at this point, I guess we have a diversified allocation across managers and premium. And to be honest, most of them are along the line of 10 vol products. If you look at it together, coming back to your question, which I've avoided, if you look at it together on the absolute returns allocation, the the volatility will be somewhere in, in between. But once again, on the diversified fund level, the portfolio managers can allocate to one or the other component and using different weights depending on how or on whether it's an SAA-based fund or a goals-based fund. And I'm probably you know, not going to talk too much about it because that's done on a total portfolio level. But uh, I guess what I do is just to make sure that the strategies that I, within my book, I manage more like bottom-up uh, with objectives of a certain role. So the final question, what what's the expectation of this part of the portfolio, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of the liquidity requirements to look like? Without saying too much, this sits in the in the liquid part of our portfolio. I mean with the co-investments, we can allow a little bit less liquidity, but given that we have a, a certain target weight to co-investments, that, that doesn't create an issue for us. The, the reason I asked the question is that some of the funds, you know, the other super funds are using their hedge fund alternate strategies book as potentially a, a, another source of liquid um, mm. funds, liquid equities that they can sort of draw down on. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think this, I mean, you know, most of the strategies in the public markets domain, so um, they're mostly liquid. I mean, if you look at Altruist Premium, that's like in the way it's implemented using the derivatives most likely. The instruments are fully liquid, right? So it usually sits in, in the liquid part of the portfolio. And I've heard of other managers and other investors using Altris Premium as the liquidity source. In some instances, it's, it's not news. I've seen that happen before. I think I've seen that happen in March again. And then in terms of the hedge funds, they are also will be in, in our allocation. They're also in the liquid part of the portfolio. But I, I wouldn't want the strategies to be necessarily classified as li- liquidity providers. I mean, if we needed to 
And given that we're moving into a custom mandate, actually, another benefit of that is that you can have enhanced transparency on your strategies and more guidelines in place in terms of how much liquidity you need. So I guess if we really needed to, we could definitely raise liquidity from that part of the book as well. All right. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Anastasia. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.